Well, the passage that Allison read a moment ago with that uh, wonderful Scottish accent was from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, passage commonly known as the temptation of Jesus. In some of your Bibles, there may be a heading that says something like a, a prelude to his ministry. In my Bible, following this story, is a section that's headed, Jesus begins his ministry. But I think this was part of Jesus' ministry, the temptation he was undergoing. And as we look at this passage this morning, and I, I think this passage is highly, highly significant in the Gospels, critically important to understand it. As we look at this passage, I'd like to start with just a little bit of background before we, we look into how Jesus specifically defeated temptation and how he teaches us to defeat temptation. Just a bit of background. Jesus actually began his ministry, I think, before he went into the wilderness. He began his ministry by praying and obeying. In Luke chapter 3, we read that when all the people were being baptized, that is, by John the Baptist, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the next verse reads, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, Jesus was 30 before he launched out into his public ministry. He begins by being baptized by John the Baptist, not that Jesus ever sinned or needed to be baptized, but he did it in his own words to fulfill all righteousness, showing us, I think, the importance of baptism. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then Luke continues with this long genealogy going all the way back to Adam. In the end of chapter 3 reads, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does Luke take us back to this genealogy that goes to Adam? And then all of a sudden, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. We'll ponder that more in just a moment. So Jesus immediately, after he's baptized, he faces spiritual conflict. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where for 40 days, he's not only fasting, but he's tempted by the devil. Now, it's notable that Jesus, when he stepped right into ministry, immediately encountered spiritual conflict of the worst kind. Not some underling demons, but Satan himself confronts Christ, seeking to turn him away, to deter him from what he would accomplish on the cross, from what he would accomplish in his ministry. Satan had tried to defeat the very coming of Jesus. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, at the birth of Jesus, Herod, who learned about uh, the birth of, of, of one that would be called Messiah, decreed that all the male children in Bethlehem and that whole region two years old and under would be slaughtered. Satan had tried to prevent the coming of Christ, but now he's here. He's been in relative obscurity until the age of 30, and now it's beginning. And immediately there's spiritual conflict. This next point is, is why I think this passage is so highly significant and why it immediately follows the genealogy that goes back to Adam. Jesus now prevailed 
where Adam had failed. There's a good deal written about this by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 5, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. In Romans 5, we read this, by one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, the many were made sinners. What that means is when Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, sin entered the human race, and it spread to all human beings. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. This is extremely important to understand. If Jesus had succumbed to Satan's temptation, and they were very real temptations, our salvation would not have been. We could essentially say it hung in the balance as Jesus was being tempted. Now, Jesus was the Son of God. He was God the Son. But Jesus was also a very real flesh and blood human being facing a very real temptation. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly, completely, as a flesh and blood human being. Where Adam had failed, Jesus prevailed. And because of that, Jesus could then go to the cross as one who knew no sin and had never sinned and offer his sinless life as a sacrifice so that the scripture could say God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that in him, through our faith in him, we might be made the righteousness of God. And again, as the verse you see reads, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus was not only obedient in his going to the cross. Jesus was obedient in every step of life, every moment of his earthly life. He fulfilled perfectly the will of God the law of God. He prevailed where Adam had failed. Jesus faced Satan as a flesh and blood man, human being. But Jesus was also full of the Holy Spirit. We're told that at the very beginning, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, was led into the wilderness. Jesus is now facing Satan as a spirit filled, sinless, flesh and blood, man, human being, full of the Spirit, and further, this is extremely important, Jesus knew Scripture well. When Jesus faces his temptations, three that are are noted here in the Gospel of Luke, how does he respond? Does he say to Satan, Satan, I've just... I'm the son of God. I'm God the son. You're just a created being. You're just an angel. Does he he depend upon that? No. He faces Satan as he calls us to face Satan with the written word of God, the scripture. Three times in this passage, Jesus will quote scripture. All three quotations, it's interesting, they come from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Two of them from chapter 6 and one of them from chapter 8. Those are not places we usually memorize verses from. 
it would seem that Jesus could quote from anywhere in Scripture because he used Scripture throughout his ministry. It's, it's important, I think, to note here that Jesus understood Scripture as the inspired and authoritative Word of God. For Jesus to quote Scripture was to settle a matter because this, in his understanding, was the authoritative Word of God. It's important to grasp that, especially for our students who go off to college, well, anybody who reads anything on the internet that, that challenges the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. It's important to remember Jesus trusted the written words of God as being authoritative, inspired, settled. And he quotes from them to overcome Satan. Another thing worth noting is that Jesus fasted. In fact, in this case, he had fasted 40 days. I was with a group of uh, pastors several years ago. We were, we were talking about um, spiritual disciplines. and The subject of fasting came up. I was really surprised that in that group, and there were five or six of us, almost no one else believed that fasting was relevant for today. One of these pastor said, well, didn't Paul talk about that? Didn't he call it asceticism and say we shouldn't do that? Paul himself fasted. The early church in the book of Acts fasted. Jesus assumed his followers would fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you fast, don't do it this way, do it this way. I think fasting is valid and valuable in the Christian life. We have got some little booklets at our resource center today. We won't talk about any more about fasting today, but this is a little booklet that we've designed to, to explain what fasting is, how to do it, when to do it, what the benefits are. Um, it's available. It's free. It's at our resource center. We've got plenty of them. If you want one, you can pick one up today. But it's notable, I think, that Jesus fasted. Finally, I'll say this as background before we get into the passage itself. Jesus gained private victory before he began public ministry. That is, Jesus faced temptation. He was obedient. He was faithful to God when no one else was watching before he launched out on a large public ministry. Why is this significant as an example for us? It is a sad and harmful thing when a Christian leader becomes popular and get some kind of a public platform before the inward spiritual work, the life of prayer and obedience and devotion to God before those things are in place. Because when they are not in place, a, a fall, a big public fall is coming. So Jesus is not only our Savior, our Lord, he's our example. He lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die. He became our great substitute, the sacrificial lamb, but he was also our example. And in this passage, in Luke chapter 4, there is so much you and I can learn about facing temptation. So I'd like to look into that this morning. What does Jesus teach us in Luke 4 here about defeating temptation? First is the importance of awareness. 
looking at this passage, we, we, we see that a life of service to God means conflict with the evil one. I think the, perhaps the most important thing to understand about temptation is that it, um, it's where it can come from. The Bible indicates that, that temptation can really come from two, two sources. Temptation is an enticement to sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. Being tempted is not sinful in itself. Jesus was tempted, so we know that to be true. But temptation is an enticement to sin. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 1, everyone is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Our inward desires can draw us toward sin, cause us to be tempted, but there is an, also an active devil who is called the tempter. And he's very much at work here with Jesus. We read these words in verses 1 and 2. When G and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And then in verse 13, after all these temptations are over, we read these words. When the devil had ended every temptation, and we don't know how many occurred over 40 days. We're just given three here in the gospel. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. In other words, Satan was going to come back. He was not going to stop here. He looked for opportune times, times of vulnerability. That's the same things to you and me. He looks for those times, those seasons in life when you're most vulnerable to provide temptation. He would try again. The Apostle Peter warns us as believers in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He looks for an opportune time. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Awareness of the reality of temptation can lead to avoidance. By that I mean one of the best ways to avoid temptation is to stay away from the places where you know you may be tempted or from the people whom you know may lead you into temptation. The Apostle Paul writes that bad company ruins good morals. Many of us know that temptation is going to come if we're around a certain group of people. Many of us know that temptation is going to come if we're just in a certain environment. Avoidance is important. We also see in Jesus, however, not only the, the awareness, but the preparedness for temptation. We can overcome temptation, we're taught in Scripture, by being submitted to God and by trust in His Word. Let's look at these temptations. Temptation number one, the first one that comes, is found in verses 3 and 4. The devil says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and verse 2 says, afterward he was hungry. Well, I guess he was. 
40 days of, of, of fasting, I'd be hungry after missing one meal. 40 days. And so Satan says, if you're the son of God, if you are, show me your power. Just turn that stone into bread. Fulfill your hunger. It's an interesting thing that this first temptation given us in this passage has to do with food because it was food, forbidden fruit, that caused Adam to fall in the Garden of Eden. Not because Eve and Adam were hungry, but because Satan tempted them and enticed them and said, if you eat this fruit, you'll, you'll be like God. You'll become like God. They failed. Jesus prevailed. For Jesus, I think, the temptation was not so much to have bread as it was to use his power independently from the Father's leading. Because everything Jesus did in using his great power and authority on the earth, he did in submissiveness to God the Father. He said, I always do what I see the Father doing. Everything he did was done out of obedience. He did not act independently of the Father. So he's waiting on the Father's word. So when Satan tempts him, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, a verse that comes out of the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites when they grumbled and they complained to Moses because they didn't have food and Moses went to God and God gave them manna, bread from heaven to teach them that they might know, quote, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Jesus takes that truth and essentially says, Satan, I don't live by my fleshly desires. I live by the word of my Father, the Father God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think this is essentially what Jesus was saying. I'm not using my power independently to satisfy my own needs. I'm acting in dependence with the Father, dependence upon his word. The key idea for us, I think, is this. Life is not found in satisfying our, our, our fleshly desires. It's found in dependence upon God and doing his will. He provides for our needs. He provides our needs for food and clothing and shelter, of course. But essentially, life is found in dependence upon God and doing his will. Not trying to gain what we want or need independently of him. Temptation number two. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus said, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now a question immediately arises here in this one. Was it a real temptation? I mean, Satan said, I give you all this, everything you see, all this glory of the, the world, cities of the world you see. Was Satan just making that up? Did he really have that kind of authority? It's a mystery. 
bit of a mystery, but I'll say this. <clears throat> Jesus, three times in the Gospel of John, referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul referred to Satan as the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. The evil, the brokenness, the destruction that we see in the world is the fruit of Satan ruling over the world system and the evil that is behind it. Jesus himself called this spirit of the world in operation, in operation a sinful and adulterous generation. God, when the Bible says God so loved the world, it means he loved the people, the people of the world. So when Satan offers this temptation to Christ, what he is essentially saying is, you can have your kingdom. You can have your authority. You can have your wealth and your power, and you can rule over it all and bypass the cross. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to take that route. Now, Satan is a deceiver. Scripture calls him a liar. Scripture calls him the deceiver of the whole world. The temptation here was to seize authority, to seize a kingdom, and bypass the cross. But Jesus said, no. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And here again, he quotes in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where God tells the Israelites, no other gods before me. The Lord your God is a jealous God. Only him. You shall worship only him. Jesus was not about to bow the knee to the devil. He often tempts us to bypass the way of truthfulness and integrity. God's way. To get what we want in life. We're called to do things God's way, to realize that life is found in worshiping God and serving God in obedience to his word. <clears throat> Temptation number three, he took him to Jerusalem, that is the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Now this is an interesting thing. Satan sees that Christ has now used scripture both the other temptations. So Satan now is going to do it himself. He's going to use scripture and he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And he says, for it is written. Jesus said, it is written, it is written. Now the devil says, all right, it is written. He'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan is a master at using Scripture out of its context. Jesus knew that the words of Scripture in Psalm 91 were to paint a picture of God's great power, to reveal his power and his care for his people. They were not intended to test God, to try to bend God to our will or our way or make God do something or jump through a hoop for us, to reveal his power not to tempt him, not to test him. And so Jesus responds with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16 and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The 
key idea is, is that life is found in trusting, not in testing God. And I think this particular temptation also shows us the very, very great importance of, of understanding Scripture, understanding its intent, understanding its context, not taking some isolated verse and trying to, to, to make it a prescription so that we can get what we want at a certain time, but understanding it properly in the way it was provided for us and written for us in its context. So the idea we see in Jesus, the lesson I think it provides to us is that we, we must be prepared to defeat temptation. We know it's going to come. We know Peter said, your adversary, the devil's walking around looking for somebody to devour. Be ready. Be ready to resist him. Jesus taught us the value of being prepared by having scripture. So the lesson is to be prepared to defeat temptation by, for one, knowing where you're weak. And then knowing scripture to gird yourself up and prepare yourself for facing temptation. Let me try to give you a couple of, two or three examples of that. Many people find there's a battle in the area of our, our thought life, our thought life. Today, um, pornography is one of the greatest temptations I have I've ever seen amongst men, in particular. My son-in-law works uh, with crew and he's just told me he works with, with young men, students, high school students, and he, he just tells me it's just, it's just everywhere. That that ungodly demonic industry is really focused on our youth and trying to snare them in pornography. So it's a very real battle for many people today. So if that's a struggle for you, find the scriptures whereby you can strengthen yourself, your mind, and stand against them. Here's, here are a few examples. Psalm 101, verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. The temptation comes. Quote these verses aloud. Quote them aloud. Memorize them. Meditate on them. Psalm 119, verse 37, is a great prayer to pray as you submit to God and depend on His strength. Lord, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Think about Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Maybe one of the areas in thought life where you struggle is guilt over some past sin. This is an issue for many people. Take verses like these. Romans 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when Satan brings to your mind that sin you committed years ago for which you have repented, for which you have received forgiveness, but the accuser of the brethren, the devil, comes to accuse you, quote this aloud. There's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fear is a temptation for many. And I'll tell you, when I first began having opportunities to teach the, the Bible, 
I had a battle with fear and it went on for a very long time that was unlike anything I'd ever faced in my life. Maybe it just came from my own inward sense of uh, inadequacy. I don't know. Maybe it was an outward assault that was actually demonic. I tend to think it was, but I can remember after I'd moved to Winston-Salem as a young adult and I first began having opportunities to teach the Bible, I felt like maybe God had given me somewhat of a calling to do that. And it was very odd because I, I was a, a sales rep. I sold um, office equipment for a company called Lanier Business Products. And I could stand up and do a sales presentation in front of a room full of people with no problem. But I started having this problem that w when, when I would, was to teach a, a, a Bible study or some little Bible message, I was so gripped by fear I couldn't speak. And it was, the fear was just horrendous. And this didn't just go on for a week or two. It went on probably for a couple years. And so I had to begin to um, memorize the verses I could find in the Bible that pertained to fear. I think my favorite one is the one you see on the screen. And Paul says to Timothy, who apparently struggled with fear, with timidity in his his own ministry, struggled with being ashamed of the gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. God gave us a spirit not of fear, not of cowardice, but of power and of love and of self-control. I don't know how many times I've quoted that verse. And even over the years, even since our, our church has been here, there have been times that thought would come back that you're going to get up there, you're not, you're not going to be up, you're going to freeze up, you're not going to talk. Take the word of God like Jesus did and use it as a shield and as a sword. It is the sword of the spirit. It is the word of the living God. And Jesus teaches us that it's powerful to defeat our adversary. Finally, I would just say this about defeating temptation. We've seen the importance of awareness so that, that, that we can avoid temptation, of preparedness so that we can defeat it. Also, the value of trust. Simply remember that Jesus stands ready to help us defeat temptation. Jesus does not leave us to stand against temptation on our own. One reason the Son of God faced temptation as a flesh and blood human being and he faced it victoriously, is so that today, for his people, he can stand with us. He sympathizes with us. These beautiful words from Hebrews make that very, very clear. Hebrews chapter 4. Look carefully at these words. They're critically, critically important. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that's remarkable. Jesus understands your weaknesses, my weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. 
I think it was Martin Luther who said, it's no sin to be tempted. You you can't control uh, birds flying over your head, but you can control their making a nest in your hair or something like that. It's it's taking it in, it's entertaining it, dwelling it upon it, beginning to act upon it. Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence... Confidence because you know you have one who represents you there, who is merciful and faithful and has faced temptation and has overcome. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And our time of need is our time of temptation when we do feel weak. Just know if you have a recurring temptation that has been defeating you, that Jesus stands ready at the right hand of the Father to provide to you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. One of my favorite phrases in the New Testament is is that phrase, the throne of grace. We think of God's throne. Typically, I think we think of it as a throne of judgment, and it is. It's depicted as a throne of judgment. But for the believer, you come to God through faith in Jesus. The throne of God for you is the throne of grace. It's the place you receive grace and mercy for your need to help you walk through these things. Awareness, preparedness, trust. God's throne is for us the throne of grace because Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, became a flesh and blood human being. He knew sorrow, he knew grief. He knew suffering. He knew temptation, the strongest kind, yet without sin. And then ultimately, he took his perfect life and allowed himself to be taken and spit upon and mocked and brutalized and flogged and scourged and nailed up to a cross. And on that cross, there would come a divine exchange. Our sin laid upon the sinless one the Son of God, he who knew no sin, made to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. He bore our judgment. He took our place. He died our death. He calls us to ever celebrate that, remember that, with what we call the Lord's Supper. And so I'll invite you again, if, you, if you'd like to participate today, to be sure you've got one of these cups that can be found on those tables in the back or out the main door there. But first, I'd like to read what the Apostle Paul wrote about this. He writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're about to do this morning. Make a visible proclamation that we have received by faith the benefits of the Lord's death as we await his return, and he will return. 
Paul gives a warning, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'd like to take a moment in prayer now for us to do just that, to allow the Lord to prepare us, to speak to us, so that we take communion properly. Would you join me as we pray? Father, please speak to each of us. First, about our own relationship with you. I pray for any in our sanctuary, any watching online who have never yet put their trust in Christ alone, who have never embraced his salvation, turning from sin and turning to you. Would you call each one to say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I receive. Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. Be my Savior and my Lord. Speak to those of us who are believers, Lord. If there's a sin to confess, bring it to mind. Let us approach you with hearts full of gratitude and sincerity now.